Y'all, it's been a wonderful day to worship the Lord today. Just a wonderful time together. Let's finish it off with a word from the Lord. Revelation chapter 5, 1092. I love the way we worship the Lord. And tonight, we are going to talk about worship, what it looks like, what it means, why, what it is. Uh, Tonight, we're talking about worshiping the Lord from a passage. Really, Revelation chapter 5 is my favorite chapter in the Bible, and this chapter preaches itself. So, uh, I gave myself an easy one tonight. Uh, This, I mean, you could read this in a stuttering monotone and somebody would come to trust Christ because uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful, uh, everything, everything is in this chapter. So, let's pray and let's read it and let's learn how to worship Christ better tonight. Father God, I thank you that you are so gracious to us to have spoken to us. And I pray just that, that you would teach us to worship you better tonight. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. John is speaking about what he sees, and he says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. And also I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals? I created this scroll one time for a youth activity when we were just doing object lessons every night, and uh, we, we wrote a lot, wrote everything I could on Revelation on a sheet of paper, and we rolled it up and we sealed it up with some little wax seals to, to, as an image to see it. But for us, for our purposes tonight, the scroll, uh, we're simply to understand that this is God's plan. That's what's written on this. This is the plan. It's all prepared, and it's all there, and it's all written out. The instructions uh, are perfect. This is God's plan for judgment over evil. This is resurrection, finally. This is eternal life. This is the end of the plan. It's like the last chapter of everything God has been doing. And someone says, this loud voice says, here it is, Who's worthy to open it? And to open it means to execute it, so to speak. The one who can do it, who can fulfill the plan and make the plan work. When I was a child, there was a certain man who was very important to me, and this certain man, he loved it when a plan came together. Uh, From the A-team, it was the leader of the A-team, Hannibal. We would, uh, we, yeah, thank you. Man loved it when a plan came together. That was his constant phrase because their plans, the A-team, were always ridiculous. And in fact, I mean, we, we loved the A-team, my brothers and I, and I always had to, I, I, wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be Hannibal, but my older brother always insisted on being Hannibal, and so I always had to be uh, Murdoch, the crazy one, which, you know what? I grew into it. Uh, I went ahead and fulfilled that role well. And my older brother was the one who enjoyed it when a plan comes together. And Hannibal would say every episode they'd have a crazy plan, and he'd say, I love it when a plan comes together. And sure enough, this fits really well for my older brother. Uh, he has a meticulously kept spreadsheet of his 20-year plan for his life. Like, he knows exactly what's going to happen uh, for the next 20 years of, you know, when his children hit milestones and how that coincides with his promotions as a colonel and moving up through the army. And so, I mean, he has it all laid out. It's, it's wild. I, I don't necessarily live like that. Uh, I generally know what we're going to do next Sunday. You know, I, I, have a, I have a, I'm pretty, I know what, 
I know what's going on, kind of. Uh, let's just say, as a virtue, I'm flexible, you know? We can, if things change, it's not a problem. We can sort that out, too. There's a contingency for that, I'm sure. Somebody has it written down. But to understand who God is, God is the one who, before He began creating, had the entire plan of all creation and all time sorted out, written down perfectly, because God is perfect in wisdom and knowledge and understanding, and God stands outside of time. There's nothing that surprises Him. If the best thing you say is that I'm, I'm at least really flexible and able to handle any kind of contingency, there's no contingencies for God because He knows what's going to happen, and He has it planned out perfect, and the plan is as best as it could be. His purposes are perfect. And so before He begins creating, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit gather together and write out the plan. And it's flawless, and all that's needed is the last chapter to be fulfilled. Resurrection, judgment, the end of sin, and eternal life with God going on into eternity. And so, final chapter is held up in the air here, and a loud voice says, verse 2, "'Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals?' But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. Have you ever just felt entirely alone? I have a long history of driving unreliable vehicles. And so, periodically, I get left stranded in some strange location. But for me, I don't tend to, whether I should or not, I don't tend to worry about these sort of things. I mean, you know, look at me. What are you going to do? I'm going to be all right. And so, I've had a couple of real interesting, like, back roads in Arkansas sort of car broke down, and outside of Simpsonville, South Carolina, a car broke down. And for me, I know it just means I'm going to have an adventure now. And that's uh, that's why I'm going to walk down the street and find somebody and knock on a few doors, and we'll, we'll get this sorted out one way or another. And so, I have a little adventure, still figure out the task at hand, but in a little bit more circuitous route than usual. But there are other times when I was in real need in my life, and it seemed like there was nobody who could help me, that there was nobody around who could do what needed to be done to bring me safely home. Have you ever been stuck in a desperate situation and all alone? Have you ever been waiting in the emergency room, in pain, and apparently there are no doctors in this hospital? Have you ever been hurt and you cannot find a specialist or a doctor who can help you understand what is wrong or is willing to spend the time with you, and it seems like there is nobody who can explain it to you and nobody who can help you get through this season into health? Have you wept and wept like John did? Well, John sees the perfect plan of God, but no one's even able to look into it to know what God is doing. And this is the right time for him to be weeping. They look everywhere for someone who can open the scroll. It says, no one in heaven or on earth or even under the earth 
The idea is like they took a survey. They actually went and checked is what you're to understand here. It's like back in Genesis when God sends Adam off to count and to number and to name the animals, and he looks around and he sees that every animal has a pair, but he realizes he's alone and there's not one like him, but there's everything else has one like them, and he surveys everything to find this out. Well, here, they go survey everyone. He says, there's no one. We looked. There's no one in heaven. There's no one on earth. There's no one under the earth. No one who's ever lived or died any time is able to open this scroll. You might think to yourself, David, perhaps King David, right? Surely King David, he had a heart after God's own heart. He did. But he was also a failure and unable to fulfill the work of God that God had called. How about Abraham? After all, Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Surely, if anyone, Abraham. It's not Abraham. He, too, a sinner, periodically did not trust God's will. Was it Moses? Moses was called a friend of God. Moses was the one who saw God face to face and talked with him as a friend. Surely, Moses, not good enough to lead the people into the promised land parable and a parallel to what is happening here with the scroll being opened. How about our patron saint, John the Baptist? No greater man born of woman than John the Baptist, right? Not worthy to open the scroll, still a sinner like everyone else. And so John weeps and he weeps. Verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. See, this one who is able to, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the very root of David, the one who is greater than David because he was before David, who David worshiped and talked about, So that one is worthy. And why is he worthy? Because he has conquered. It was something he has done. He has conquered, and so he is able to open the scroll. What has he conquered? Verse 6, then I looked, and I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is worthy to fulfill all the plans of God because He has conquered all of His enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, and He has conquered death as well. He is worthy. And how did He conquer death? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah was made as a slaughtered lamb for us. The elder says to John, look, the lion has conquered. And John looks and what he sees is a slaughtered lamb. It's one and the same person, Jesus Christ, our lion, who made himself as a slaughtered lamb and sacrifice for us. And then notice here in 6 and 7, try and figure out in your mind where everyone is standing, okay? I saw one like the slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Okay, so where is God the Father in this? Seated on the throne. Where else would he be? 
He's seated on the throne very clearly. Where is Jesus Christ, the Son? He is in the midst, it says, of the throne. This is important and different. You have the Father seated on the throne. You have the Son seated in the midst of the throne. And where do you have the Holy Spirit? This phrase, the seven spirits of God, it was used this morning, uh, and it's used this evening as well here in Revelation. And you were to understand this means the Holy Spirit, the, the perfect Spirit, the Spirit of God. And this one, the Holy Spirit of ours, is the one who is sent out into all the earth and is now in all the earth, the Spirit of God. So, you have the Father on the throne, you have the Son in the midst of the throne, and where is the Holy Spirit? It says that the slaughtered lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The Spirit is on the Son, the Son in the midst of the throne, the Father on the throne. You have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all here together, their plan here together. The Son standing in the midst of the throne, the Father on the throne, and the Holy Spirit on the Son, and sent out into the entire earth. He is worthy to take the scroll. And so, what's the Son do? He takes the scroll and He opens it. Verse 8, when He took the scroll, all of the living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one with a harp and a golden bowl filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they all sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign on the earth. This passage is so beautiful and perfect because it gives you the center of what is the gospel and what God are we talking about in worshiping. I've said to you before, how do you decide who is and isn't a Christian? We, we aren't the ones who decide who's getting into heaven or not, but when you're talking to somebody of a different denomination or calls themselves a Christian, but the things that they're saying are a little strange, how do you categorize, okay, that person, that denomination, they are a Christian. That person, that group, that's a cult. <laughs> that's not Christian. What's your standard and your criteria for, at the very minimum, you could say of another denomination, okay, they don't baptize like we baptize, but I know they're Christians. So, what's your criteria for what a Christian is? I offer to you, at minimum, very minimum, you have to be talking about the right God, and you have to be talking about the right gospel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally one God. If that's wrong, you are not a Christian. Salvation by grace through faith. If you get that wrong, you're not a Christian. Something else. This is where all these cult groups who call themselves Christians go wrong, whether it's Mormons who get the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit completely wrong, so they also get the gospel wrong. Any other group. And here we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it is the Son who, here's the gospel, He is worthy because He was slaughtered and purchased people for God by His blood and made them into a kingdom of priests. It is by the very grace of God that He has done this for us. Let's talk about worship now. We have the best passage in Scripture. <laughs> John weeps. He sees the sun, and everyone for the rest of the chapter just starts worshiping. 
Let's keep reading. Verse 11, I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne. So first, back up in verse 8, he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they all fell down before the Lamb, and each one of them had the implements of worship. They had harps, they had bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints offered as worship to God. These implements of worship they have, but even more than those implements of worship, the most important implement of worship is their voices. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, tongue, language, and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Well, then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne. So here's the songs of the angels, the angels around the throne, and also the living creatures and the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one who is seated on the throne, to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. So, we're talking about worship tonight because what better place to go and learn about worship? You get the gospel. You get the God. You get everything perfect from God. And what do you do in response to the fact that God planned it all perfectly? He moved through our lives specifically and has drawn you towards Him. He is steering your life now as He steers the nation. He had a plan for all of it. You know, Speaking of God's plan, I, I like history. Some of you guys you like history books. Do you read books about history? It's fun to go study history and go see historical sites and monuments and things. How you tell the story of, of history is, is interesting. It's, it's one thing to think through what all happened, what all did it mean, how do you create a narrative about this and some coherent story about what's going on. The trouble with writing a history is that you're always wrong. Because you always have to uh, move some facts to the background in order to tell a story. So you don't quite get right everything that's going on. But moreover, we're always wrong because we have the wrong perspective of history. See, history was written down by God before it began and before creation. And so what's really going on in the world right now is not in one sense, is not, well, Russia moving over here into the Ukraine, and Europe is surprisingly blasé about this, and so are we going to do anything about it? Or you know, th That's one story of what's going on. But periodically, you and I get glimpses of the real story of history. Like this morning, when we hear from a missionary who say, here's what's really happening in history. When we someday arrive in heaven, and we finally receive the perspective from God telling us the whole story, what we'll know about what was important about this date was all these people who were trusting Christ over here. When we get that perspective and we find out what's going on in China right now, that the story of that group of people and nation is that people are being persecuted heavily but are trusting the Lord and that the gospel is spreading and there is nothing Oh, and they're trying hard, but there is nothing that can stop the spread of the gospel. 
Someday we're going to get the real story. We're going to see the scrolls opened up and know what God was doing at all these times. And what are we going to do on that day? (laughs) What else is there to do except what these people do here? They fall on their face and they worship. And they say, you are worthy. So what are we going to do today? What else is there for us to do today? We don't have all the details just yet. But we catch glimpses. And we still do the exact same thing today that we will do on that day. We fall down and worship because we saw that we knew even when we didn't see and we believed that this God was working in the world as He's working in our lives and in our families. So what is worship? Worship is our response to what God has done. They all stand up and they start worshiping and they say, well, what do they say? They all stand up and they start simply celebrating what God is doing. They're like fans in the stands, essentially. It's fun to get to be a fan, especially if you have the right team. (laughs) And and when the right team is playing the right way, uh, it's fun to be a fan, I suppose, sometimes, of uh, professional football. It's fun to watch a Cowboys game when when they're playing like one should, when they're playing well. It's disappointing to watch Cowboys games. Uh, if you watch a Cowboys football game, it's, it's weird and I think a little silly how many times the network has to pan to Jerry Jones and you have to watch the owner of the Cowboys give his reactions to the events that are happening on the field. There's some contract, right, about how, much, how many minutes of airtime he has to have per game because this doesn't happen everywhere, but he's got a deal on that because, I don't know, he's got a brand of his own and whatever. Uh, it's a little absurd, but when you watch a game, he, during that game anyway, is no better than any other spectator. Uh, in the stands. After the game, he's got some decisions to make. Uh, But during the game, he's like any other fan. I'd prefer to look at and watch the other fans. But there's very little to do when you're watching a good football game except watch it and see what unfolds. What are you going to do if the team's playing well? You rejoice. Rejoice. And I mean, what are you going to do if the team's not playing well? What can you add you're like, hold on, I'm going to get out there. We're going we're to get this right. <laughs> Pass me a helmet. You know, I could have kicked that field goal. What are you going to do? There's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for you to add except to watch and to rejoice and to praise and to celebrate and then to go home and tell everybody about how it went and to wear fan apparel and to talk about it with everybody you see and to invite people to come back with you and to rejoice with you. And in this way... This is what it is to worship Christ. He has done it all for us. There's little left for us to do except to rejoice and to praise and to celebrate and to go home and tell everyone about Him and to wear fan apparel and to talk about it and to run into people in Home Depot who are also wearing the fan apparel and go, yeah, Christ. How good is it to be a fellow believer? and then to invite other people to come and rejoice with us. Much of the Christian life is simply worshiping Him. It's like fans in the stand rejoicing to see all that God is doing. Worship is our response to what God has done already. Worship is also our declaration to what God has done. So, worship, it's not just the… it is, first of all, the response. God has done it. But you see, as they sing these songs here in chapter 5, 
Worship is them declaring. To worship is to say, this is what God has done. So, go ahead. It's Sunday night, so we can be a little interactive. Give me, there's several, but just give me one word or specific ones. What sorts of things has God done here that they're worshiping Him for? Go ahead, try it. What are some of the things? There's a couple of them. Just give me one. What are the things that they are worshiping God for that He has done? They're declaring them. What are they? That He's worthy. What's He done? Why is He worthy? He was slaughtered. What else? Give me some more. Sorry, I only heard slaughtered from him, from Richard. Because he's worthy to open the seals. What else has he done? He purchased people. He bought us. He went and paid the price for us. He made us priests. They are worshiping because, you know how emotional it is? Uh, to talk about a little child like Emmanuel who was found on the side of the road with a placenta still attached to him, covered in fire ants, and to take that child and to clean that child up and to care for this child and to raise them up uh, and to see him thriving and doing well. This is what God does to us. You've purchased us by your blood and drawn us in and made us into a people and a kingdom and not just brought us in on the side but made us priests to God, made us to reign with Him forever on the earth. Go ahead for you now, personally. What has God done that we worship Him? What has He done in your life? He saved you, healed belief. What has God done that we worship Him? He forgave us. He made us a friend. Eternal life. He's never really left me alone. Even when I felt alone, He's never left me alone. He is with us. To worship is to declare what God has done. The best of our worship songs, you know, Richard says, we're going to sing every verse, and that's true, I'm all for it, except, you know, let's be honest, some of those hymns are maybe two verses too long. No, maybe just one or two of them, maybe just one or two of them, but we're to follow. But the best of them declare what God has done. So to worship for us is to declare what God has done. Finally, worship is our praise of God for who He is, worthy, worthy, worthy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's end with some worship. We're going to watch a video first uh, of the Andrew Peterson song we mentioned, uh, a different one than the one I mentioned. Uh, and then we're also going to sing our own songs together too. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? 
Is he worthy? 